You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. The message doesn't lend itself so much toward salvation this morning, but, that, but salvation is available to you this morning. And if you've come in here and we talked, we've talked about sin and we've talked about uh, Jesus Christ dying for us, listen, you are a sinner. The Bible says in Romans 3, all have sinned. And you are a sinner and that sin has a consequence of death, separation from God for eternity. And if you try it in your own strength, you'll never make it. And yet God sent his son to die on a cross in our place for our sins. He commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He saw us as worth it. And he died in our place. And all that is required now is belief in his payment. You turn from your sin, look to him and say, there's no other way. There's no other door. It's Jesus Christ alone. And I place my faith in him. And listen, today, there's no better day than today to be the day of your salvation. And I want to encourage you, don't leave this building without having that taken care of. And if the Lord prompts you to do it, listen, I'm telling you, today is the day to do it. And that Holy Spirit that's working on you and your heart um, this morning, that's not an accident. It's not, you know, pizza you ate last night. That's the Holy Spirit working. And I want to ask you to submit to that, to that prompting in your life this morning. It's good to see you this morning. Glad you're here. Glad to be back after traveling. We were out last week and uh, glad to be back in our place here at Eastside. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 30 this morning. And technically we'll, we'll, we'll uh, look a little bit at Genesis 29 and uh, I'll have you stand in just a moment, but let me give you just, uh, just a, a, a background, a review. Last time we were in Genesis, we were looking at the details of the birth of Jacob's 12 sons. And these 12 sons uh, become the 12 tribes of Israel, which means this is a significant text. Because those 12 tribes uh, are, have an important role in history. And, and uh, you know, it's interesting, how you would think that the 12, 12 tribes of Jacob, of Israel, would have had an impressive start. But as we read through this text, you find out that the 12 sons of Jacob were born with drama, manipulation, uh, um, just dysfunction. I mean, whatever, envy, competition. Um, there's, there's just so much going on here that, that it is interesting to think this is how God allowed those 12 tribes of, of Israel to begin. And here's the thing. When you try to do things without God, it always gets messy. Every single time. And he can still make something good out of it. But we're, we're about to see just how messy it gets. He can turn a mess into something significant. And, and I was thinking about Bob Ross. You know who Bob Ross is? He's the painter. You know, with the hair. You know, his hair looks like a paintbrush. I mean, he just he's a painting. He's a painting guy. And, and, and he'll start on a painting and... And he'll put some stuff up there and you're like, this is going to be weird. It doesn't look like anything. And then after about 10 minutes, things start to take shape. And he takes something that was messy and he, and he turns it into a masterpiece. Bob Ross. You know, God is way better at that than Bob Ross. Because he can take the messes we make in our lives and he can turn them into something significant. And I'm thankful that he does that here. And, 
And just so just as a reminder, last time uh, we looked at how Leah was, was one of Jacob's wife and wives. Leah was the first wife of Jacob. And if you remember, Jacob loved Rachel, but Laban tricked Jacob and gave Leah to Jacob instead. And so Jacob wakes up the next morning after the wedding night and realizes that he's married the sister he wasn't expecting to marry. And turnabout is fair play that, that boomerang came back and now he's married to Leah. But he still marries Rachel. He still loves Rachel. And, and so Laban allows him to work seven more years and they go ahead and get married. But Leah's the one that starts having babies. And we looked last time at how Leah had these children with Jacob and the names of her sons were an indicator of her mindset. Uh, she first had Reuben, and, and Reuben means behold a son. And it's almost as if Leah was saying, Jacob, I know you love Rachel more than me, but look, I've, I've given you a son, and maybe you'll love me now. And Jacob still didn't love her. So she has another son with Jacob, and this one's name is Simeon, and that means hearing. And it, basically the Lord has heard me, that he's heard that I am unloved, and he gave me another son. And she has another one named Levi, and Levi's name means together. It means attachment. And she, in her mind, she thinks, well, maybe now that I've produced three sons for Jacob, he'll be attached to me. He'll love me. And it's really a sad commentary that, that she was trying in all of these ways to get Jacob to love her, and, and he really never did. She finally gets to the point where she has her fourth son, and his name is Judah, and it means praise. Because she finally got over trying to earn Jacob's favor. And she says, you know what, now I'll just praise the Lord. And he has provided a son for me and I'll, I'll turn my heart and attention to the Lord. She stopped seeking Jacob's approval and started looking to please the Lord. And so that was last time. Well, now we come into chapter 30 and our focus instead of Leah is now on Rachel. And so I'd like to stand together and read and this will... This may be a, a lengthier reading. I'll try to move quickly through it. G Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. Leah's had four children, four boys. Don't forget that. Then look at verse 1. And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I die. She was envious of her sister Leah. And the definition of envy, if you look it up, it also means zealous. In other words, you're never just kind of envious. You're always zealously envious. It always, it always works you up. She's worked up here. She's so worked up, she says, if I don't get children, I'm going to die, Jacob. And that's a, that's a big deal to her to have children she was barren, the previous chapter says, but, and yet she, she seems to be blaming Jacob for the fact that she doesn't have children, yet this is the Lord's doing. Look at verse 2. It says, And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in God's stead, who hath withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? He responds with anger, which isn't right, but his answer is right. He says, There are some things that only God controls, Rachel. And this is one of those. When it comes to children, none of us are in God's stead. And listen, there are families in our church that, that have not been able to have children. And I, I just want to use Jacob's answer here to give you some confirmation this, that that is in the hands of God. Leave that in God's hands and that, let that relieve some pressure off of your life. He's the one that opens the womb and he closes the womb. Do all you can, but let the ultimate pressure and timing 
be on God. Verse 3, it says, and she said, behold, my maid Bilhah. So here's Rachel's alternative. She says, here's my maid Bilhah. Go in unto her, and she shall bear upon my knees, that I may also have children by her. So Rachel says, I don't have children. I'm envious of Leah. If I don't have children, I'm going to die. So I'm going to do the next best thing, and I will give you my concubine. I'll give you my handmaid. You can go in unto my handmaid, Jacob. You can treat her like she's your wife, and you can have a child by her, and, and that will be my child. I'll be this, she'll be the surrogate, but I'll adopt that baby, and it'll be just like mine. Verse 4, And she gave him Bilhah, her handmaid, to wife, and Jacob went in unto her, and Bilhah conceived, and bare Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God hath judged me and hath also heard my voice and hath given me a son. Therefore called she his name Dan. And we'll go back and look at the names later. But in Bilhah, Rachel's maid conceived again and bare Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with great wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. And she called his name Naphtali. And so she, she gives her her handmaid Bilhah to Jacob. He goes in unto her. They have two sons together. And that doesn't fix the situation. Go figure. It actually amps it up between these two sisters. Now if they were, if they were wrestling before. They're really wrestling now. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had left bearing. She took Zilpah her maid. And gave her Jacob to wife. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a son. And Leah said, a troop cometh. And she called his name Gad. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for the daughters will call me blessed. And she called his name Asher. Leah says, you know, it's like last time, it's almost like a card game. Rachel, you know, Leah has, uh, Rachel says, I, I see my beauty and, and the wife that's loved and and I play that hand. And Leah says, I see the beauty, but I, I'll, I'll give him four sons. And I play that hand. And then Rachel comes back. Now Leah comes back. And I'm telling you, this is a mess. And if you think, well, this is justification for this kind of lifestyle. God never condones this. This is not God's plan. These are men and women taking the, God's intentions into their own hands. And turning it into something that's really all about them. Here's Leah saying, happy am I. My, my handmaid has had a, had a baby. I'm happy. It's all about me now. And then they really get interesting. Look at verse 14. And Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest. So Reuben is, is a teenager at this point or a young man. And this is the oldest. He found mandrakes in the field. And, and a mandrake is a root. And and he says, he brought them unto his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, give me, I pray thee, of thy son's mandrakes. Now, mandrakes, again, are a root. Israel, they're known as love apples. So they're, they're, they're some kind of an, either, there's a, a stigma about them that, that they're, they think it increases fertility. And, and I don't know if that's true. I, I don't know what the actual biological effects are. Uh, but God blesses Leah. Um, after this and, and, and she hasn't had children for some time we see that she starts having children again I'm not saying it's because of the mandrakes I happen to believe that God is sovereign and that he's the one in control of all of this but look at verse 15 she said unto her is it a small matter that thou hast taken my husband and wouldst thou take away my son's mandrakes also 
And Rachel said, therefore, he, Jacob, shall lie with thee tonight for thy son's mandrakes. This is just getting ridiculous. And Jacob came out of the field in the evening. He's just been working, just kind of doing his job. Doesn't know all the drama going on behind the scenes. And Leah went out to meet him and said, thou must come in unto me, for surely I have hired thee with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. Again, what a mess. What a, what a web we weave. I mean, a tangled web when we try to do it all in our own strength. Verse 17. And God hearkened unto Leah, and she conceived and bare Jacob the fifth son. And Leah said, God hath given me my hire because I have given me my maiden to my husband. And she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and bare Jacob the sixth son. And Leah said, God hath endued me with a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. And she called his name Zebulun. And afterwards she bare a daughter and called her name Dinah. And God remembered Rachel. And God hearkened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bare a son. And said, God hath taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. There's so, there's so much here. We could do a whole series on this. And again, you know, I've been joking about the, uh, the theme music for a soap opera playing when you open to these chapters. Because that's what it feels like. But, but really, in the end, we're reminded that God's timing and God's plan, it'll happen when he wants it to. I mean, we looked at this passage last time and Leah is learning. She's trying to live to please Jacob and it doesn't work. We only should try to please one. We have an audience of one and that's God the Father. But today I want to consider Rachel. She's not so much trying to gain Jacob's attention because she has it already. As she is trying to compete with Leah. See, both mindsets will leave you empty and searching for more. And it's only when we come to the end of ourselves and let God do what only he can do that we find contentment that we've always looked for. See, Leah and Rachel both had to learn this. Too many of us are focused on what others are doing. And we forget that, that only one opinion matters. But it's hard not to live the Christian life as if we're in a competition. Like we're all competing in the amazing Christian race against each other well listen that's not our focus we'll, we'll hopefully touch on that this morning and I'm calling it the competitive edge and not in a good way see when everyone is competing against each other it creates an edge that's not healthy and I want to look at how that worked in this situation may God bless the reading of his word you may be seated I appreciate your standing as many of you know our family just took a road trip and and I've got, I, for some reason, I'm just full of driving illustrations lately, maybe because I've been driving a lot. But, but we were, you know, I, one of the things that I noticed is when you're driving, we, we drove a pretty good distance. But when you're driving for long periods of time, you find out that different areas or different states or different cities, they have different driving habits and different driving patterns. Um, there are some areas that, that everyone goes the speed limit or, or below. And that's, that's frustrating in and of itself. Say, <laughs> so a pastor shouldn't talk that way. Okay, I, I know, but, but sometimes it's frustrating. Then there are other areas, like for instance, we drove through Atlanta. Has anybody ever driven through Atlanta? Or should I say, have you ever parked on the interstates in Atlanta for three or four hours at a time? Yes. 
Uh, and then we, get, we went to Florida for a few days. And in Florida, it's a very competitive driving situation. And, you know, I, you kind of get, you just drive and you try to adapt to where, you're, where you are in, in certain areas. You just kind of, you know, go with the flow, as they say. Because there are some places that if you go the speed limit, you're in danger. Because everyone else is going so much faster than the speed limit. So multiple times on this trip, um, I'm just trying to survive. I'm, I'm driving the speed limit, trying not to get run over. I'm being serious. I, you say, well, you're just using it as a justification to speed. No, that's my wife. I was just trying to survive <laughs> and, and just, just to come out of it alive. And so we're, you know, I'm driving and, and multiple times on this trip, um, I got so focused on what everyone around me was doing that I forgot really only one opinion on the freeway matters. And that's the highway patrolman waiting for you. I'm not going to tell you any stories because there are no stories, but I can tell you this, I may need new brakes because of all the panicked brake hitting that I was doing. When you see one, you've done that before, right? Well, you know, I really do believe that that is a picture of the Christian life because it's easy to be living it and working and moving along and we get so focused on what everyone around us is doing that we forget there's really only one opinion that matters. There's really only one that we should be living for. And yet when we're working and living and serving around other people, then it's easy to lose focus on his opinion and start to think about everybody else's opinion. And start to say, well, what are they doing? Or what are, how fast are they going? Or what is their standard? And forget that really God is the one that we answer to. You know, like, like the Apostle Paul said last, we read this last time in Colossians 3. He wrote, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. He wrote in that same chapter, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ, he says. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. It's just very easy to get moving along in life and forget that really we answer to one. And last time, Leah was so concerned about her husband and getting his approval that she lived to please another person. She was trying to measure up. But for Rachel, that's not her focus. For Rachel, her focus was Leah. Leah was trying to measure up, but Rachel was just trying to keep up. Rachel was just trying to do what Leah was doing. Rachel was just trying to, to, uh, to please, yes, please Jacob, but she was trying to have children at the rate that Leah was. And, and Leah was having children and Rachel wasn't, and it put all this pressure on Rachel and we know that her mindset wasn't right based on what she was naming her boys because their names give us a glimpse into her mindset look at the first son that she has and really she doesn't have the son this is Bilhah her handmaid has a son in verse 5 Bilhah conceived and bare Jacob a son and Rachel said God hath judged me and hath also heard my voice and hath given me a son therefore she called his name Dan, what Rachel is saying is my focus has been toward my sister. But now that my handmaid has borne a child for me, I feel vindicated. 
I mean, how, how strange that a surrogate baby helps her feel vindicated. One commentator, Barnhouse, he said, can a woman get, get so low that she will hit her sister over the head with a baby? Rachel did. Because that's essentially what she does. She essentially has a baby to try to get one up on her sister. Well, then another baby's on the way. In verse 7, Bilhah, Rachel's maid, conceived again. And Rachel, I'm sorry, and bare Jacob a son, a second son. And Rachel said, with great wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister. And I have prevailed. I mean, that's what the name means. And again, Leah is her focus. For Rachel, she's so envious that she feels her married life has been a wrestling match. You talk about envy. She says, the competition's been fierce, but I have finally come out on top. And I'm thinking, Rachel was apparently not very good at math. Because Leah has four sons at this point. And Rachel, through her handmaid, now has just two but she's so consumed with keeping up with Leah that she thinks the fact that she has two sons means that she has come out on top. She's in this competitive mode. It's all about competition. Well, Leah apparently isn't done with competition because she sees what Rachel's doing and she throws her handmaid into the mix. In verse 9, when Leah saw that she had left bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her Jacob to wife, and Zilpah Leah's maid bare Jacob a son. And Leah said, A troop cometh. And she called his name Gad. Gad, a troop is, uh, is a, a, it means good fortune, basically, lots of blessings. And in the Hebrew, I, I looked this up, and my best interpretation of this is, is anything you can do, I can do better. Not really, but that's what it seems like. Leah's like, Okay, you're gonna use your handmaid? I've got a handmaid. And I can use my handmaid to have another child. And so now I'm going to name him Gad. It means troop. It means there's a big, I've got lots of blessings. And, uh, and basically, look at what, what's happening for me. And, let, and yeah, and just take that. I mean, that's, that's, that's literally what's happening here. And, and you're looking at me like, um, like this is serious. There's almost, it is serious, but it's, al it's almost humorous. That they're going to these lengths. To outdo each other. Then she has Asher and she calls him Asher and says, basically this is happy am I. For the daughters will call me blessed. You know, I don't get the sense that anybody is concerned about what God wants. Happy am I. Everyone's going to look at me and they're going to say I'm blessed. And then we get to the strange incident with the mandrakes and I'm not even going to Go into that very much more, but then Leah has second or second round of babies, and she has Issachar, and in verse 17, look at that. It says, And God hearkened unto Leah, she conceived and bare Jacob the fifth son. And Leah said, God hath given me my hire, because I have given my maiden to my husband. Basically, she says, Because I worked something out for my handmaid to have babies, God has rewarded me for my efforts. Verse 19. And Leah conceived again and bare Jacob the sixth son. And Leah said, God hath endued me with a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me because I've borne him six sons. She called his name Zebulun. We finally kind of get back to the emptiness we saw in her in chapter 29. She says, maybe after six sons, my husband will love me again. Then she has a daughter. There's not significance to Dinah's name. But that seems to put an end to the competition. Because after that, God finally visits 
Rachel. And Rachel has a son, and you and I know his, his story. His name is Joseph, and it means Jehovah has added. You know, basically, what Rachel finally gets to after years of waiting is there's no way this could have happened without God. There's no way this could have happened without the Lord. And then as if to express faith, she implies that the Lord will add another son. And he does five chapters later with Benjamin. But I just want to take a step back. I mean, we could get into all these details and I, 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 we, we could. We could really study it out. But I just want to take a step back and, and think about the mindsets. Leah's mindset was, if, if Jake, only Jacob approved of me, I just wish I measured up. Leah was others focused and she lived to please somebody else and, and it didn't work. Jacob never loved her like she wanted. She was never good enough. And it wasn't until she realized that God is the opinion that matters the most and, and that God can be pleased with me if I just do what I need to do. She had to learn this truth. I don't need the approval of others to live a life that pleases God. I'm going to say that again because I'm going to contrast it with Rachel. I don't need the approval of others to live a life that pleases God. You don't need the approval of others to live a life that pleases God. The success of your life is not defined uh, by how many friends you have or how many followers you have on Instagram or how many likes your selfie gets. The definition of your life pleasing God is not about uh, what other people approve of in your life or what they say about your life. No, you live for one opinion and I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful like last time that God can be pleased. People can't be pleased, I'm telling you. But God can be pleased. He wants to look at us at the end of our life and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm thankful for that. But Rachel had a different problem. Rachel didn't have children and it's a difficult thing to overcome. And she wasn't able to turn her brain off about it. She allowed it to progress to the point of envy. She likely had thoughts like this. I just want what Leah has. It's not fair that it comes so easy for them. I mean, why is she getting all the attention from everybody else? Jacob's supposed to love me the most, and, and I, I, sh I deserve children. I, I deserve it as much as they do. Why won't God give me a chance? And these are thoughts Rachel had. Uh, I'm actually the favorite. I, don't, I deserve some recognition. If only God would give me that opportunity. I could show everybody how good of a mom I could be. I'm missing out on the one thing that could make me happy. That should be me. And before we're too hard on Rachel about this, we're all capable of turning life into the amazing race. We're so Some of us are very naturally competitive. And it's hard for us to let somebody else have the upper hand. I mean, I, I remember when my kids got old enough to beat me in Candyland, I stopped playing it for about 10 years. <laughs> I'm not going to let my four-year-old daughter beat me at Candyland. That's hard, that's hard for a dad to take. Uh, some of you, I mean, you'll spend 15 minutes to find the closest spot at Walmart when you could have parked further away, gone in, got what you needed, got back to your car and left in that amount of time, but getting that open spot... That first spot. Listen, we are competitive by nature. Uh, we don't want somebody to outdo us. And that's because we're all creatures of pride. 
We like to be first. We like to be heard. We like to get the attention. We like to get the credit. Being competitive does have some advantages and that you should have some drive, but it too often skews our vision because there are times then when that spirit makes us look at other people and say, well, they're, they're, that their better job um, should be my job. Their better job can turn into my envy. Their nicer vehicle can make me discontent with mine. Their perfect family can make me resent my, what I have and make me resent what they have. Their body shape, their talents, their you name it. And before long, our focus on the competition turns us into envious and bitter competitors. And the Bible says, who can stand before envy? And the rhetorical answer is nobody. You can't stand before envy. It shrivels us up. It turns us into bitter, angry, resentful, envious rivals. And it points to a flaw in our focus because we've stopped looking up and we've just started looking around. And when that happens, every injustice becomes a cause. You know, it becomes a banner under which we're ready to fight, you know, that something isn't fair or they get something that we wanted. You know, that's what Rachel did. She took what she viewed as unfair and she made it a cause. And when you view every injustice as a cause, you'll find yourself taking matters into your own hands to make things right. She, I mean, here's Rachel taking this young handmaid and, and giving her to Jacob, basically turning her into a pawn in her game against her rival, her sister, Leah. And when you take matters into your own hands, you'll do the wrong things hoping to get the right results. But when your focus is vertical, you can handle the injustices because you recognize that they're God's responsibility. It's not my job to fix all the wrongs against me. If I'm focused on God, I'll allow myself to leave those things in his hands. When your focus is vertical, you're not concerned about competing with your neighbor or another church member or a family member because you answer to God and he's the one whose opinion matters the most. And if you're looking at the Lord, the things happening to you down here don't seem nearly as big. So my message today, and I could stop here, but I've got some application. My message today is this. Stop living to outdo other people. The Christian life is not about me beating you. It's not about you beating me. It's not about Eastside doing it better than somebody else. It's not about competition. We are here to please the Lord. Stop living to outdo other people. And there's two things that come to my mind about why. Why this matters is because, number one, because some people you'll never outdo. There are some people that you will never outdo. You say, well, that hurts my feelings and that that hurts my sense of self-worth. Well, as we heard in Sunday school, somebody said, suck it up, buttercup, or some, I don't remember the reference, I'll look it up later in the scripture, but... No, we need to hear that. I mean, you may be smart, but there's always going to be somebody smarter than you. And you may, Brother Mark is here and he plays the trumpet real uh, well. He plays for the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra. We're going to close. He's going to, him and his mom are going to play a song and it's beautiful. And I'm thankful. Mark Nelson, grateful. And he's, he's he's a wonderful musician. Brother Mark, I mean, there are better trumpet players out there than you. And, it's, and that's, that's a, a big deal. You know, they're, they're, somebody's always going to be better at you than something. 
at something. You, you think, well, this is my strength. This is really you know, what, what God has gifted me with. There's always going to be somebody better. So if your standard is to live to outdo other people, that means that you'll never be content because there will always be somebody better than you. So stop trying to outdo people because you'll never be the best at something that you're doing. You might be strong. There's somebody stronger. You may be great at your job. There, you'll likely not be the best out there that there is. Think about that, how empty that is. It means you'll never be satisfied. If your standard is to be better and you're not the best, you'll never be content. It's an impossible standard that can't be attained. Some people you'll never outdo. But that's not the only reason to stop living, to outdo other people. The second one that I thought of is this. More importantly, God doesn't measure us based on comparisons to other people. God's not looking at your life and either approving or disapproving based on how you're doing compared to everybody else. Be thankful for that because, again, some people will never outdo. We naturally want to be the best, uh, but God's standard is that we do the best with what we have. 1 Corinthians 4, 2, what does he say? Moreover, it is required in stewards, what? That a man be found faithful. God's measuring stick for our lives is not the person in the cubicle next to you at work. God's measuring stick for your life is not your neighbor. It's not a member of your family. It's not the person sitting next to you in the pew. God doesn't ask, well, no, how do they match up to so-and-so? No, his measuring stick is what, what did they do with what they were given? In Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, those stewards, he didn't judge them against each other. He measured them based on what they were capable of and what they did with what they had and that should be a freeing thought this morning. That means that I'm only responsible uh, with answering to God. I don't have to beat my neighbor. I don't have to beat the teacher next to me here at Eastside. And I don't have to teach a better lesson than them. I just have to do my very best with what God has given me. I have to be thankful for the things that I've given, I've been given, and say, God, I don't have to be the best, but I want to do my best. Amen. This should free us up from this spirit of competition that seems to overtake everybody. You know, Leah needed this truth. I don't need the approval of others to live a life that pleases God. But here's what Rachel needed. Rachel needed this truth. I don't need to compete with others to live a life that pleases God. I don't need to compete with other people to live a life that pleases God. It's not the amazing race. Don't turn life into a competition. And it's unfortunate that we do this. And I've seen it happen in church. Someone gets an opportunity and suddenly there's resentment. Someone gets promoted to a position of leadership and it turns into an offense. Somebody gets a blessing and the mindset is, I deserve it as much as them. No, but like Jesus told Peter at the end of John, what is it to you what John does? You be concerned about Peter, he told Peter. We're not competing against each other. We have one person we're aiming to please. And he doesn't care if you're better than so-and-so. He's only concerned with you doing the best you can with what you've been given. So friends, today, be content with your gifts. Be content. Use them. Improve them. Pursue excellence with them. Do your very best. But be content with what God has blessed you with. Stop looking around and comparing yourself. 
Look up and ask the Lord, are you pleased with how I'm using how you've made me? And, and this is all shapes and sizes. It's every level of talent. It's rich and poor. It's the cool kids and not the cool kids. God didn't call us to be the best. He called us to do our best. And the gifts that he gave you are exactly the ones he wants you to have. And your responsibility is not to be, have more gifts than the next guy, but to use your gifts for God's glory, the very best that you have, the very best you can right here in your local church. That's why he puts you right here at Eastside. And by the way, if you haven't joined Eastside and you'd like to be a member, listen, I'm telling you, God has a place for you right here with your gifts to use them exactly uh, how he wants you to use them. And you can't ever use those gifts the way that they were truly intended until you plug in and say, I want to be a part of that. Embrace the gifts. Be content with the gifts you have. Do the very best you can with them. Also, be content with your position. Just be faithful. Let God do the promoting. Some people, every conversation you have, it seems like they're, they're trying to promote themselves or let you know what they've done or let you know how far they've, they've gone and what they've accomplished. No, listen, let God promote you. Let him be the one who sees when it's time for you to take a step or move up or move in a different direction. Do the best you can where you are. Be faithful, but be content. It doesn't mean don't improve, but it does mean do the best where you are. And if God sees fit to promote you, praise his name. I'm thankful for people in our church that have a position or they have some limitations, but they do the best that they can with what they have. It's a good lesson. I think about Donna Gambrell. And, you know, she hasn't been able to be faithful to services for a while. She's taken care of her husband and... And, uh, and yet she used to be very involved at Eastside. And it must, it must you know, and I'm, I know she's listening this morning, and that must be difficult. And she, she must think, well, you know, it's less for me now, and I, I'm not what I should be. And, and no, with the position that God's put you in, just do the very best you can with where you are and what position you have, and let God take care of blessing that. If you get so focused on what you used to be or what you want to be or what somebody else is, then you can't be used the way that you're supposed to. I mean, Brother Sam Flute's not here this morning, uh, but you know, Brother Sam brings his wheelchair in here, and once or twice every message, you hear that robotic, amen. (laughs) He pushes the button, amen, when it's a really good point, you know. Either that or he just accidentally brushes against it, you know. You know, and we have men in our church, perfectly usable voice boxes. Silence. Here's Sam with a machine that speaks for him, saying amen when he can. And men, what are you doing with your voice? And he didn't look at that and say, you know what, I have a limitation. God can't use me. He says, you know what, I'm going to do the best I can with what I have. I'm going to be content with my position, with my station in life. And I'm going to say amen through my, through my chat box if I need to. Thankful for on Sunday mornings in Sunday school, Brother Bob will stand up and he'll read a verse to the class. 
And, he, and he's, he's not a natural, necessarily a natural public speaker, but he wants to do what he can. Right, Bob? Okay, maybe he is a natural public speaker. He's content with his position. He's just trying to do the best he can. Men, what are you doing? So be content with your gifts. Be content with your position. But be content with who you are. To look at something about you physically and loathe it. To look at something about your personality and and be angry about it. To look at your wisdom and, and say there's a mistake here. To think about your upbringing or your education or your intelligence and say, I'm just not good enough. You know, that's not an indictment on you. That's an indictment on the God that created you. God made you who you are like you are. You look like you do because God made you that way. And you walk and you talk like you do because God made you that way. You have the parents that you have because God chose them. You have the background you have because God wanted you to come from that experience. You have the personality you have because that's how God made you. And in all of these things, I don't mean don't try. We've already established that God wants you to do our best. But the things you can't change should never become excuses to not do your best for God. If he made you that way, embrace it. Say, I will do the best I can with what I have because God made me this way. He gave me the gifts I have. He put me in the position I'm in. And I'm just going to be content with who I am. Sure, I'm going to try to improve it. But I want to be used. I don't want to sit. I don't want to make excuses. God expects us to take what he gives us and do our very best. But again, he didn't call us to be the best. He called us to do our best. You don't have to be the best to be used. You just have to be faithful. If you're older and you're past your prime, there are things you can't do anymore. But I love our older folks. And that's where the party's at at Eastside, by the way. If you're older and past your prime, there are things you can't do, but you can pray. And a church without a foundation of prayer is just a club. We need it. You can write notes. Ms. Marlis writes me notes, and man, I read them over and over. You can be an encouragement. If you're shy, you don't have confidence, and you regret or resent that. You know, there may be things you're not good at, but the Bible's full of people like Moses who didn't think they could be used, and they were. Maybe you're raised... You weren't raised in this, this kind of background and you don't have this kind of experience. Listen, there's a lot of people in this room. And I'm looking around the room and I see people that weren't raised like this. And, you, and then you come in and you think, well, I have to be like them in order to be used. But you don't realize they weren't always like them. God, God brought them from something you'd be surprised at. Brought them to the point where they can be used. And this room is full of people like that. And I'm just saying, we sometimes use these things as excuses to not be used. But they're not excuses to not be used. They are, they are reasons to say, God, do with me what only you can do. And imagine all the glory you're going to get from it. If you're t- short or you're tall or you're young or old or bald or gray or whatever, I have good news for you. God made you who you are. And his gifts are good enough. 
He put you in the positions you hold. He gave you the talents you have. He made you who you are to be used. And all he asks is that you do your best with what you've been given. You don't have to compete with everyone else to please God. You simply have to say, here's what I have, God. And I'll do my best with it. See, we all have something to overcome like Rachel. She was barren. And she thought, I can't compete. But remember what happened in her life. In God's timing, she had a son named Joseph. Jehovah has added. And at some point, she got to the place that she knew there's no way she could ever match up to Leah. Leah had six babies. Leah was competing with Father Abraham for the prize or the title of the one that has many sons, okay? She could not compete with that, but she could do the best she could with her situation in life. And after all those years of waiting, God in his timing and his sovereignty showed up and he made her fruitful. And here's the the lesson to learn. As long as you try to outdo everyone else, it will only produce an unfruitful life. But the moment you stop competing with other people and you start living to please the one, he transforms your life from empty to fruitful. But he's the only one that can. So keep up the competition if you want to stand empty for God. Or turn your gaze upward if you want to bear fruit that remains. Competition leads to spiritual barrenness. But living to please God produces lasting fruit. So the question is, what kind of life do you want, fruitful or barren? You want something that lasts and something that matters? Listen, if it doesn't matter to you, just let others be your standard and work hard to be the best and you'll have your reward. Or you can turn your eyes upward and say, I'm nobody, I've got nothing to offer, but I'll do the best I can, God, with what you've given me and I'll live to please you, Father. And then watch him produce fruit in your life you've always dreamed about. If you live to compete, you'll come up empty. If you live to please God, you'll wind up full. Now go back to the truth that we looked at last time. Men are impossible to please, but God is not. God can be pleased. He wants to be. He's just looking for people that will operate by faith. So stop trying to please people and stop trying to compete with people and simply do your best with what you have for God. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Have you been in competition mode? Trying to outdo, trying to outlive, trying to outgive, trying to outperform somebody else, and you just can't keep up. Listen, you're not, you're not responsible to keep up. You have one person whose opinion matters, and that's the Heavenly Father. So stop looking around and look up. And realize that if you want a fruitful life for God, you can't live to compete with other people. You just do the best that you can with what God has given you. There may be some in here this morning you say, I have, um, I've never had a relationship with Christ. Listen, today's the day. You say, if you died today and you don't know where you'd spend eternity, would you just, when the music begins, would you just come see me? 
Jesus Christ died for your place, in your place, for your sins. This morning, listen, he, he can save your soul. He can give you peace. Would you do that? For the Christian who's been trying to compete with everybody else and you don't feel like you can keep up, well, you can't. Well, today's the day to free ourselves from that bondage and stop looking around and stop, start looking up and let him produce fruit that you've always wanted. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth and I pray that you'd help overcome any weaknesses in the declaration. God, that your Holy Spirit would apply this truth to our hearts in ways that I couldn't even think of. God, it's not about keeping up with the Joneses. It's about serving to please God. Help us, Lord, where we have failed in this area of competition. Because, Lord, I, we're not here to outdo each other. We're here to please God. And I pray that you'd speak, that you'd work in our hearts. And, Lord, work as you will in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.